When we have these functioning services provided by nature, we need to understand them. We need to conserve them. We need to not lose them because what we make in their place is very, very rarely as good as what was there to start with. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast. I'm Jennifer Skeen. And I'm Viveka Morris. Over thousands of years, humans have reshaped the planet in our own image. We've dammed and straightened meandering rivers and filled in wetlands. We've transformed primordial forests into farms and turned oceans into highways. Cornfields cover an area of earth the size of France while humans and our domestic animals now account for around 96% of all terrestrial mammal biomass. Wild mammals account for just 3%. In the cataclysms of the Anthropocene, humans appear to be the primary shapers of our world and its demise. It's a battle of control, of taming, and of separation. But for all our impact and for all our attempts to cordon off and control the natural world, we're just as beholden to ecological laws as we were more than 200,000 years ago when Homo sapiens emerged. We're defined and shaped by a world much bigger and much smaller than ourselves, one that we've barely even begun to scratch the surface of knowing. While scientists have gravitated towards studying the species that most resemble our own, the vast majority of life on Earth looks nothing like us. In the late 19th century, scientists estimated that there were about 500,000 insect species. Now they believe there are more than 8 million. 7 million of which are still unnamed. At least half of all fungi found in our houses are still unstudied. According to one estimate, there are a trillion kinds of bacteria on the planet. Shutting this world out isn't just impossible. As our guest today, the renowned ecologist Dr. Rob Dunn has highlighted, it's ultimately fatal. As Dr. Dunn writes in his profound and humbling new book, A Natural History of the Future, in the face of environmental challenges in such an unknown world, We survive not by simplifying and isolating, but through embracing diversity and connectivity and living in accordance to the ecological laws that govern humans, just like all other species. The laws of ecology are immutable and escapable, whether we're in a forest, an agricultural field, a subway station, or a human body. From runaway antibiotic-resistant bacteria and the spread of new and old parasites, to agricultural collapse and mass species declines, the implications of ignoring these ecological guideposts are catastrophic. Dr. Dunn writes that, as humans enter an increasingly unstable, inhospitable future, we're going to need to humble ourselves in the face of vast unknowns, align ourselves with the laws of nature, and maybe take a lesson or two from crows. Dr. Dunn has spent his career studying the little known living world around and within us and sharing his contagious enthusiasm and his and his fellow scientists' astonishing insights with readers around the world. A professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State University, Dr. Dunn has looked at some of the most intimate yet unexplored connections between humans and animals and the environments we inhabit. From the bacteria on our showerheads to the mites on our faces to mosquitoes in the London tube and rats in New York, he's opened our eyes to the array of wonders beneath our roofs and under our skin. In the process, he's given us a glimpse of the marvelous unknown and just how much there is to discover right under and inside our noses. Dr. Dunn, welcome. Oh, it's so great to be on the show. Thank you. You you write in your book about a number of ecologist origin stories, including you know the the childhood of the the great E.O. Wilson, who we just lost recently. What what's your own origin story, and how did you end up so immersed in a world of parasites, fungi, and bacteria? So I grew up as a as an outdoor kid, I grew up in a small town. My dad always wanted to be a herpetologist, but discovered he wasn't very good at chemistry. And, and so it barred his way. Um, but I grew up in a place where I didn't know that the kinds of things I do now could be a profession. Uh, I thought there were things that someone was, that one could be interested in, but it, it wasn't obvious that there was a road from those fascinations, I guess is the word, um, toward a career. And then I went to college at Kalamazoo College in Western Michigan, and I thought I was going to be an economist. And then I ended up in this building, and in the building, 
there were offices that were full of birds' nests and eggs and muddy boots and cages. And these were the things of my childhood. And I was slowly coming to realize that there was somebody in this building that was doing what I did as a child, as, as an adult job. And these folks in this building, I would come to realize, were the ecologists. And, and so as an undergrad, I started to realize that, look, there, maybe there was a, a livelihood in paying attention to the natural world and learning its, its details. What I didn't understand until later, and I think this is common uh, for ecologists, is the extent to which ecology as a field, and I'm trained as a community ecologist, I'm trained to study how species interact, is partially about those details, but also about the general rules. And that discovery was actually even more exciting for me because it, it wed my interest in economics, which is very much about rules, with my interest in the natural world. And in that context, I would come to realize that, that you could spend your days making observations about details that might help you make sense of these general rules. And some of these general rules were understood, but many of them weren't. And so what a wonderful thing to embark on. And then it sort of went from there and my career changed as I went along, but, but it was really from, from natural history to economics to kind of a, a marriage of those two things in the context of ecology. People are familiar with the laws of physics and the laws of chemistry and, and the laws of certain sciences, laws, as you write in a book, like gravity, inertia, entropy, the laws of thermodynamics and so forth. But it seems like many people are, are much less familiar with the idea of there being laws or rules of ecology. But indeed, there are, as you write, you know, laws that govern how species interact and how, how cells move and ecosystems and even minds and, and more. And your new book is, is about these laws. We're excited to talk to you about the specific laws and, and what they mean for the future of, of the world and, and some of the just truly astonishing examples that you write about. But before we dive into that, why was it important to you to draw the public's attention to these laws at this moment and to frame them as laws and as rules that, that have such predictive power? Yeah, that's a great question. So as ecologists, we often think that there are many of us and that we have a loud voice. But the, the truth is that we're actually a relatively small group globally. You know, there are more cardiologists in the United States than there are ecologists in the world. And, and so a lot of what we take for granted in terms of what we've come to understand about the world is really hidden from broader audiences. And, and I think the idea that there are rules, regularities, laws, whatever we want to call them, the, the idea that those exist in ecology is, is something that we don't talk about very much. And yet as ecologists, it's what we spend tens of time thinking about. Uh, and, and so in general, I mean, I like to share these sort of hidden parts of my scientific life with a broader audience. But I think the other part is that these laws are often very much at odds with our daily behavior. And, and so they seem in the context of a world that we're rapidly changing, they seem actually to be growing in their importance rather than contracting. And, and they're not really a part of our discourse. You know, we're, we're caught up in Elon Musk flinging himself out into space and, and not paying attention to the fact that whatever we do in space, the species we bring with us to space are still going to obey the rules of life that we've, we've, uh, sort of come to understand here on earth. And so it seems like to me a really, it's just on the one hand, interesting to talk about these rules, to think about them, to think about what we know about them and what they mean. But it also seems a really important time because I think we imagine that we've escaped them and we're taking all sorts of really consequential actions, uh, imagining that life can be an afterthought, that as long as our technology is good enough, the rest of the species on Earth uh, will obey our, our control. I would love to, to delve into some of these laws because it, throughout your book, each chapter goes into these really astonishing and eye-opening ways in which these laws are, are realized in our world and the profound implications, as you mentioned, that they have for us. The, one of the, the first ones you talk about is perhaps one of the better known laws, which is the law of natural selection, which of course was uh, initially 
penned down and, and captured by Charles Darwin, where in each generation, you know, nature selects some individuals to survive rather than others. And then those individuals tend to have traits that are most likely to survive the conditions and reproduce. The consequences of this, when it comes to our own species impact on other species, and when we try and kill species with things like pesticides, herbicides, uh, antibiotics, are pretty profound and, and sweeping. And you talk about how it's actually pretty predictable what's going to be happening if we continue down this, this track. Can you talk a little bit about the implications of this and, and what, what we found, including in experiments like that big E. coli megaplate experiment? Sure. And maybe I'll, I'll break it up and, and um, answer in, in bits and you, you can follow up if I'm, if I'm on the wrong track. So in general, for me as a biologist, the, the naturalist part of me finds a lot of sorrow at the moment. You know, it's sorrow in what we're doing to forests, sorrow at the loss of species, sorrow at floods and fires. But, but the evolutionary biologist in me finds a good bit of solace in the fact that even as we change the world so dramatically, that natural selection continues, that it's indefatigable, and and that it continues not only in remote places, but, but as I argue in the book, perhaps especially right where we live. Because one of the key, the two, there are two really key uh, components to natural selection and, and how fast it proceeds. And, and one has to do with how big a particular habitat is. That the bigger populations you have, the more species you have, the more evolutionary dynamics are going on. But the other is how strong is the selective pressure? And if we look around our daily lives, we've actually, we're creating these enormous habitats around us. We see them in the forms of farms. We see them in the forms of cities, just even of indoor space. And in those habitats that are rapidly expanding, we are applying biocides and all kinds of control ever more. You know? And so if you look at most kinds of biocides and the, the amount we're applying globally, it's going up and up and up. And the only ones that are not going up, it's because of details of other ways we've found to kill things. And, and so if we think about all those things, what, what it means is that in our daily lives, in the room you're in right now, in the room I'm in right now, in the cities we're in right now, that evolution is occurring very quickly because of these very strong selective pressures. And, and so for you know, part of me finds just wonder in this. It's sublime that this extraordinary process that's generated all of the species on earth is still working and it's working right around us right now. On the other hand, as you point out, the species that we're most likely to be favoring in this current selective regime are very often species we're, we're not likely to like very much. You know, the Omicron variant is a marvelous manifestation of the process of natural selection. And, and clearly that's not the kind of evolution we'd like to favor. By the same token, if you uh, look at German cockroaches in many cities today, they're not only resistant to many pesticides, but they've actually evolved a rewiring in their brain that leads them to perceive the sugar that's used in sugar baits for roaches as an, a bad uh, sensation rather than a pleasant sensation. So natural selection rewired their brains so they could avoid our roach baits. And, and all sorts of things are happening like this, and they're happening very quickly. And, and, and so what gets favored via those biocides all around us is kind of this amazing garden on the one hand, and amazing is in air quotes, which I know air quotes on podcasts are really terrible, <laughs> but, but they, they are amazing, but it's a garden of our neglect. It's a, it's a kind of garden of monsters is our, the default evolutionary scenario uh, we're engendering. And, and so maybe I'll flag two things here and come back to one. And, and so one of the ways that we're seeing this is, again, this selection pressure, like what, what are we favoring? We see that in antibiotic resistance. We see it in pest resistance, all these things. The other is just that if we look at the species around us, very many of those species, we've moved from place to place and they're now globally distributed. And so think about Norway rats. Well, after we move them, we also kind of isolated them because it was easy for rats to catch a ride on the ships of old that weren't very well sealed. It's actually much harder for rats to catch a ride today. 
And so the gene flow of Norway rats from, let's take an example, from Norway to New York is actually very limited. And so the other kind of evolution that's happening really rapidly is that species in different cities are diverging from each other. And so really beautiful studies have been done recently, for example, showing that even within Manhattan, the rats of uptown and the rats of downtown are diverging because Midtown is like a rat's no rat land for reasons that are not totally clear. And, and so all of this evolution is happening just really right where we are. And for a long time, we didn't pay attention to it, in part because the early thought was that evolutionary processes were very slow. And then I think secondarily, because early on ecologists and evolutionary biologists, including myself, were trained to go to faraway places. And so we were taught to go to the Galapagos, go to the Amazon. And so that's what I did in my own career. I spent years in faraway places. It was wonderful. I'd do it again. But it meant that nobody was back home studying all this stuff that was happening right where people live. And I can go into the, the example of the, of the megaplate experiment, too, if, if, if it's useful. But I think that the big picture is this extraordinary evolutionary experiment, but, but one where the control that we're exercising ignores what we know about natural selection, and so tends to lead to stuff we don't like. Since we mentioned the megaplate experiment, we'll go ahead and explain it. This was a 2016 experiment by Harvard Medical School scientists, which is captured in an incredible cinema-worthy video on YouTube. In the experiment, the researchers created a giant Petri dish plate and portioned it into sections or rows. They placed E. coli bacteria at one end with no antibiotics, and then each successive portion of the plate was laced with increasingly high doses of antibiotics. And so you watch in the video as these bacteria are first stymied by the lowest level lethal antibiotic layer, and then evolve and break through and adapt to overcome it and thrive. And then they do the same thing for the next layer and the next layer until they reach the center of the plate, which contains 1,000 times as much antibiotics as the outside layers of the plate. And the kicker is that this evolution of antibiotic resistance happened in just 10 days under these conditions, which is an extraordinarily short period of time. Yeah, I mean, Darwin had this great quote where he, where he was sort of trying to figure out how many years did, did evolution take? And from what he wrote elsewhere, we know that he was thinking, you know, many thousands, many millions. And, and now we know that in many cases, in a, in a generation, extraordinary evolutionary change can happen. Or for species with really short generations times like coronaviruses, uh, evolution can happen in, in hours. And so, I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about microbiomes on bodies. And to me, one of the things that we don't research very much, but it's just mind blowing, is that right now for everybody listening, the microbes in your body are competing with each other and, and their generation times are so fast that they're responding evolutionarily to each other in these little wars between microbes. And they're also responding evolutionarily to all these viruses that specifically attack those microbes. And so as you're talking on your tongue, evolution is happening. And by the time this podcast is over, the lineages on your tongue will be different than when the podcast started. And so th th this is something that's really, we've really only gained a, a full sense of in the last decade or so, but, but it's, it's pretty wondrous and horrible. I really enjoyed your earlier book, The Wildlife of Our Bodies, too, that goes into some of those particular examples of, of the creatures and other life that lives on and within us in, in so much more depth. Another law that you talk about in the book is the species area law, uh, which was developed and first by the late great E.O. Wilson and then by, by others thereafter, which governs how many species live on an island or in a habitat as a function of its size, and then allows us to predict where and when species will go extinct and where and when new species will evolve. And you apply this, as you're just talking about, to these islands that we have now of agriculture and islands of urbanization and indoor islands and the islands of our body and so forth. How does that law, which was originally designed for you know, actual islands, apply in, in these, these new islands that dominate the, the world? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll back up a little bit on uh, this one too, to to um, reflect upon two amazing scholars who we lost very recently. And so the species area law actually predates uh, E.O. Wilson as an observation about the world. And so we've known for a long time that bigger islands tend to have more species. And what Wilson, along with Robert MacArthur, would, would go on to do is to develop the math 
that helps us to think about how that law works, what, what governs why there are more species on big islands than small islands. And so the, the first place that this thinking was actually applied, and, and I'll just say that one of the key dynamics of this is that bigger islands tend to have more, uh, fewer extinctions. There's just more habitat available. If a species arrives, it's more likely to find a little space to persist. And they're more likely to have species get there in the first place. If you're a moth flying over the ocean, the odds that you land in a big island are, are greater than the odds that you land in a, t- land in a teeny tiny, tiny island. But one of the first places this idea was actually applied was in the context of habitat loss. And Tom Lovejoy, another amazing scholar who also recently died, established a, a project called the Biological Dynamics of Forest Fragmentation Project in Brazil. And this was a, a, a project that aimed to test these ideas about oceanic islands in the context of forest fragments. And to see if you made forest fragments of different sizes, did the smaller fragments have fewer species? What were the dynamics through which they lost their species? And, and so hundreds, probably thousands of papers were published thinking about big islands and small islands, big habitats and small island habitats in the context of species loss and conservation. But that work was mostly done by conservation biologists. And so they were very focused for good reason on rare things. Conservation biologists almost never focus on common things. But of course, if you're thinking about shrinking habitats, the flip side is that if habitats are shrinking, some other kind of habitat must be growing. And if we look at our modern world, the habitats that are growing are largely the places we live and our farms. And in fact, farms are now one of the biggest biomes on earth, depending on how we categorize them. And our cities are are a relatively big biome collectively, and they're growing extraordinarily rapidly. And even just the indoor space that we live in, our bedrooms, our bathrooms, and beyond, that indoor area is now actually bigger than some natural biomes. And so one of the things I do in the book, and I think it's really been missed, and I keep waiting for somebody to say, oh, this paper in 1964 really pointed this out and you missed it. Maybe it's there, and I, um, but I've not seen it so far. And the, but the thing that I turn this to is to really think about what can we say about these growing habitats and the species that are likely to occupy them? And and the first thing that we know is that more species are likely to colonize these growing habitats. Fewer species are likely to, of those that can live in these places are likely to go extinct from these growing habitats. And then also, and this was suggested by MacArthur and Wilson in their book, but everybody seems to have ignored it. We also expect more new species to evolve in these habitats. And and so to go back in the conversation to the, the idea of natural selection and evolution and and the evolution of new species, where we most expect new species to be arriving, evolving, undergoing new dynamics is actually in our daily lives. And so in our houses, in our backyards, in our cities. And what's what's really remarkable about that is that those ecosystems work really differently than the ecosystems we've spent most of our time studying. And so we actually are just finishing up a paper now looking at New York in this context, and that we found that for, for all of the gray parts of New York, the vast majority of the living mass, the biomass of New York is human bodies, pet bodies, human waste, pet waste, and then stored food. And, and so that's a totally different kind of ecosystem because most of the nutri- nutrients for the ecosystem are subsidized by agriculture that happens somewhere else. And And most of it, it's really decoupled from primary productivity. And so it's a different kind of space. And and so I'm I'm really interested in how do we think about that? Part of the book argues that we should be thinking about the next hundred years, the next thousand years, and what we can anticipate. And we should try to plan for some of what we already know is coming. And in in that context, to me, it's really interesting to think about for cities, how should we be managing the evolution that's occurring in cities? How should we be managing which species colonize cities? 
What species do we want to have around us in the future? What do we want these ecological and evolutionary scenarios to be like? And we really don't have those conversations very often. I mean, I've, I've actually never been to a meeting where somebody said like, well, how should we govern evolution in cities? Uh, there are little micro conversations around a little particular parts of that topic, but that big question just sits there unasked and unanswered. Yeah, that's very interesting, especially vis-a-vis your comment earlier about how there are more cardiologists in the U.S. than there are ecologists in the world, because you make so clear in examples of cities and elsewhere of these ways in which we are, without even knowing it, impacting evolution so dramatically via rodenticides and pesticides and so many other ways, infrastructure and, and, and so forth is having a profound impact on, on human health. I was also very interested to read in your book, per your comment about the indoor islands, which I suppose relates in some ways to, to the new study about New York, that you and your collaborators estimate that there are more than 1,000 animal species that live exclusively inside human structures, from house centipedes to house spiders to certain types of ants, which is likewise just such an incredible realization that so few people are focused on, focused on studying these things when they're all around us all the time. And I, I guess I wonder, do you see a change or increased interest and focus on these species that are interacting with us in our homes, on our bodies, in our farms, in our cities, compared to when you first embarked on this earlier in your career? Yeah, that's a great question. And for sure, it's changing very quickly. 20 years ago, urban ecology was a pretty small field. Now there are many, many young scientists thinking about cities. And it's really exciting because uh, so many of these species and cities have been so neglected that even a, a very cursory study of their biology often reveals something totally new. And I mean, I can even sort of point to species if there's a student coming along, like, study that one. We know nothing. I guarantee you it's surprising. And, and, and so I, I think, I mean, it is exciting to see that turn. I, I think there's more of a turn toward outdoor urban ecology than there is toward indoor urban ecology, but there's still some of both. But just as an example, you've, you've probably both had the Indian meal moths in your house. Uh, they get in your grain, they fly around at night and, and look for each other. They're super, super common. No one has ever studied their evolution. There's not a single study. And we don't know where they're native. We don't know when they move with humans. Basically, we know nothing about them except uh, one little thread of research focused in on the fact that they have weird microbes and that those microbes that they depend on are attacked by a weird virus. And so we know that, but we don't, we don't know anything about their sort of wild biology in houses or really basic things. And the great part about that is that if a grad student just spent five years on Indian meal moths, you know, she, they, or he would radically transform what we know. And so that's pretty fun. And the really exciting part about the, for, that, for me about that too is that when you do make new discoveries about species that we live around, they immediately relate to everybody's lives because people have seen them, people have thought about them versus if you make a new discovery about a, a very, uh, you know, an ant species that lives only in the northern Bolivian Amazon, the number of people to whom that's immediately relevant is pretty modest. And that, that's sort of a, a natural segue into this, this concept that you talk about in the book, which is this idea that's really a resounding theme throughout your writing, which is that Irwin's, Irwin's law and the idea that the the world is far vaster and more complex than we think it is. And that most of the life that is on earth is not yet named or studied. And this was really very pointedly shown in the work that fetal biologist Terry Irwin had done in a, in a very landmark study in a rainforest in Panama. What, what is Irwin's law and what, what did Terry Irwin show in his experiments? So Terry Irwin started off studying these ground beetles that via quirk of nomenclature primarily live up in trees. And he, he was a systematist, so a namer and classifier of life. And he, he was trying to find more kinds of ground beetles and so figured out that he could fog trees. And when he fogged trees, the beetles would fall down and he could find new species. But as he was doing this, he was asked by Peter Raven at the Missouri Botanical Garden, and I'm kind of, this is a shorter version of the story. 
how many species of arthropods he thought were in tropical forests, given what he was seeing in the trees. And he would initially said that there was no way to know. And that, then he came up with a kind of back of the bar napkin estimate that there might be 30 million tropical arthropod species. And if that were right, it would basically mean that, I mean, 29 and a half million out of every 30 million uh, arthropod species were still unnamed. And so what ensued for a little while was this huge debate about what's it, is, is Irwin right? Is it 30 million? And it was a pretty classically passive aggressive academic debate where people argued angrily about something that was actually really hard to ever solve. And the consensus ended up being that clearly there were far more arthropod species that, than we thought, but maybe it was more like 8 million. But even if it's 8 million, which I think is where we hover today, what it really means is that seven out of eight arthropod species aren't named. So seven out of eight insect species. And so for me and for a lot of people, Irwin's initial contribution and then the subsequent debate really was a wake-up call. And I came to this later. Uh, I'm a little younger right, relative to the story. But it was a wake-up call about the reality that whatever this final number is, we're too ignorant to reach a consensus about it. And we frankly remain too ignorant to reach a consensus about it. Eight million is a comfortable number. It could easily be higher than eight million. It could easily be 15 million. It might even be 20 million. But, but we're, we still have done so little work in naming these species that it's, it's going to be a long time before we know. And so Irwin's law in the book is this idea that we invariably know less about the living world than we think we do. And after Irwin's work, this would go on to be shown, for, as you mentioned in the intro, for other groups of organisms in, in ways that were even more humbling, I think. And so there's a recent study, relatively recent, of bacteria that you uh, mentioned that suggests there could be a trillion species of bacteria. People who weren't involved in the study have suggested, oh, may maybe this is way too high. You know, maybe it's maybe it's only a hundred billion. And nobody knows. But the truth is, whatever it is, it, it means that basically every species of bacteria on Earth is still uh, to be named. And so on the, on the one hand, this is just a, a kind of a accounting problem. Like we haven't done the accounting necessary to to know what's on earth. But I think the broader point is that if we don't know how many species there are, we don't know what the species are, we don't know what their biology is. And we also don't know when we change the world, how will those species respond? And, and what we've done as a kind of shorthand is we've, we've decided, we didn't decide, but it's our natural inclination is to is to pretend that most of life is like us. And so to focus most of our study on the big things, and so to then kind of pretend that, well, if we know how climate change is gonna affect birds, we'll just assume that all the bacteria and the insects kind of do the same thing. If we know what's gonna happen with, with trees, maybe the rest of the plants are gonna do the same thing. And we're so ignorant still that, that in a way we can't do otherwise, but we have to at least be aware that we don't actually know how most of these species are going to respond. And so for me, the only way to cope with this reality that the world is so much more unknown than we think it is, is to try to make sure we know these general rules, laws, regularities, so we know what will tend to happen, even if we don't know the details uh, of what a particular species will do. And I'll say that, that we, I think that that will, is a more helpful way forward, but we still get into trouble. And I mean, if, if I have time, I can tell a mosquito evolution story that I think highlights this. Yes, please. Yeah, so, so I, I've recently been writing about, there, there's a mosquito form, let's call it, in the London underground, in the tube, that was first discovered there. It was, it was present during World War II, during the Blitz, when, when Londoners were hiding uh, from bombs, they were getting devoured by this mosquito. And so... This mosquito has a close relative above ground in London, and we'll call them just the underground mosquito and the above ground mosquito to avoid 
uh, names. And it was very clear that they were very, very similar, but the underground mosquito feeds on, it likes to feed on mammals. Um, it can mate in confined spaces. The males don't have to swarm to mate. It doesn't diapause, so it doesn't go into insect hibernation. So it reproduces all year round. And so it quickly became clear that something evolutionarily had happened, that there, here's this new evolutionary unit, the London underground mosquito. And, and so this was fascinating on its own. It's sort of an obscure story in natural history. And it fits with the sort of general rules of thinking about evolution in cities. Fast forward a couple of decades, a number of studies have now revealed that this underground mosquito is in fact underground in cities around the world, in Sweden, in Australia, it's in New York City, it's in Chicago. And, and so now what recent studies have shown is that the reality is a little more complex, that it looks like this underground mosquito actually evolved in the Fertile Crescent during the domestication of crops, when people started to big, build big settlements that had underground places and water accumulated, and then it spread around the world into cities in the subsequent thousands of years. And as it did, it adapted to those local places. And so the London underground mosquito is still a unique mosquito, it appears, but its closest relatives are not the ones that are above ground. Those are its more remote relatives. It has might have closer relatives underground in France. And so, and so this still conforms with what we think about general rules about evolution and, and the ways in which species become isolated, they take advantage of new habitats. But then here's the tricky part, because this mosquito actually has consequences for humans. It has modest consequences just via its bite. People don't like it. And um, in some cities, there's enough connectivity between the underground and the above ground. These mosquitoes sometimes sneak up and bite people. And so there's a group of brownstones in, in New York where every year the mosquitoes rise up out of the underworld and devour the people in the brownstones and then retreat back into the underworld. Oh my gosh. And, and so definitely bothersome, but not deadly. The trick and the thing that's super hard to predict unless you actually know the details, and here's where my lovely general rules fail, is that there's a thing called West Nile virus that, that mostly infects birds and it's transmitted uh, by number of mosquitoes, including that above ground mosquito in, in London. And it's transmitted by mosquitoes that like birds. And those mosquitoes very, very rarely bite humans. And so typically the probability that somebody um, gets West Nile virus is really reduced by the fact that those mosquitoes just don't like us. We smell terrible to them. They would rather avoid us. The problem is that that underground mosquito likes mammals. And sometimes the underground mosquito and the above ground mosquito, they meet, they find them each other sufficiently attractive. <laughs> they overlook the underworld overworld thing and they produce offspring that like birds and mammals. Those offspring are wonderful vectors for West Nile virus from birds to humans. Mm. And actually probably play a pretty key role in West Nile virus transmission to humans. And so on the one hand, you have this broad story of mosquito evolution that more or less does what we, we would expect. You know, it's happening in these growing habitats. It combines dispersal and isolation. It obeys the rules. But then you have this little idiosyncrasy that relates to the obscure mating biology of mosquitoes, which is actually the feature with the greatest application to human health and well-being. And, and so that's the trick. You know, we need to know these rules. We shouldn't ignore them. But we also need to keep studying the details of the living world because the details can sometimes kill us. It was interesting to read the book and to, to think about the development of these of these sort of core laws that you describe and to realize that the field of ecology and to understand how these rules apply is still so relatively young. Do you think new laws will be discovered or in the process of being discovered that then will be able to explain some of these aberrant details? I mean, yeah, that's why we, we as ecologists, we keep coming to work because we think <laughs> new laws will be discovered. I mean, that's, uh, we want to work out the details, but the, the thing that keeps you up at night is that maybe you figured out mm -hmm. the, uh, 
the new missing missing law, the missing piece to this story. And and so I, we will continue to discover new general rules in ecology, and and, and we'll we will know they work when they become obvious to us. I mean, that's sort of the 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 grand success story is that some rule we discover about nature that we study it sufficiently that for students it becomes so obvious that it doesn't need to be explained and so i yeah there there will be new laws for young ecologists out there you can go wrestle with the living world and and find its truths many of the laws i talk about were studied and discovered mostly in the context of bigger species. It's entirely possible that as we learn more and more about microbes, that we find that there are a whole new set of rules that we need to make sense of the, the vast microbial world. We'll, we'll see. I mean, in, in, in some ways, for, for ecology today, it's one of the most exciting moments we've ever had because we're still so ignorant and now we have just extraordinary research tools. And, and so I think the next 10 years, it will be exciting to see, are there new general rules for, for microbes that we've been missing that, that might help us to make sense of the world and what we're doing and how it will affect us? Mm -hmm. That's tremendously exciting. One of the laws that you talk about in the book comes down to the sum of it's easier to break things than to put them back together both in all elements of our life, but also with regards to the functioning of, of ecosystems. And you, you write in the book and point out, which, which is very true, and I hadn't quite thought of it in this manner, that in the future, when you see sort of high tech and sci-fi and Elon Musk style views of, of what the future might look like, other forms of life rarely play any role at all. And if, if they're in those sort of images, they're in a highly controlled environment in a greenhouse that we've perfectly managed a la uh, Matt Damon in The Martian. And I'm wondering, the, the point that you make that replacing natural systems with technological systems rarely goes smoothly or as planned uh, was a, a very compelling uh, takeaway and, and lasting impression of me for this book. And, and you explain it in part with examples, for instance, of human water systems. Will you please explain this rule of, and how it applies to the future of mankind in, in our, our changing world? Yeah, and I'm I'm just glad somebody finally mentioned Matt Damon in this conversation. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> but, um, so, so the idea here is that when we don't, when we know relatively little about how ecological systems work, we often make mistakes in trying to rebuild them. And and I guess I should say first that that we still depend on wild ecological systems for many of the processes that allow us to live. And that's true for purification of water. If we think about where does our clean drinking water come from? So in many countries, um, most of what keeps your drinking water free of pathogens is actually competition between those pathogens and other microbes in the water, and then viruses and predators that eat those pathogens. And so we're really relying on that natural service uh, in many, many regions. Um, we think about pollination as, as an example I, I call attention to in the book. M many of our crops still rely on pollinators to produce fruit, um, pollinators other than wind, animal pollinators. And each crop that has an animal pollinator typically had a native pollinator with which it evolved. And that's what the parts of the plant best fit, you know? And so if you think about squash, there are squash bees and squash bees evolved uh, so as to depend on squash flowers, their, their bodies match the biology of the flower and they're extraordinarily effective pollinators. And, and so you have this natural system that really works. But as we started to scale up agriculture in, this, in the context of the pollinator story, uh, often that scaling up of agriculture actually harmed those native pollinators. And, and so what happens in many regions is that introduced pollinators are brought in. And so honeybees are in North America, we think of them, the decline of the bees and the problems of honeybees. Honeybees are just as introduced as cows or goats. And they were introduced for their honey, but, but their expansion really also had to do with the need to find a way to pollinate flowers that were no longer getting pollinated by their native pollinators. And so honeybees took the role of the native pollinators, but in many cases, they don't do quite as good a job. Well, now honeybees are having trouble and 
for a variety of reasons, but pesticides is for sure one part of the story. And so now people are thinking about, well, can we find another layer of solution on top of the honeybee solution to deal with the future of pollination? And so there are now multiple groups trying to make pollinator robots that would either fly or drive flower to flower and pollinate the flowers. And so in this, this story continues to unfold, but to me, it's an amazing example of a situation where you have a service that nature already provides and is really effective at providing if we do a good job of managing that natural world around our agriculture. But because we've disrupted the system, at each pass, we have to invent a new thing that's slightly inferior to the previous thing. And, and if you look around at the services we rely on, and the same is true for water, for water purification. You know, if, if you have aquifers that are safe for drinking and aquifers that rely on natural species to control pathogens, by most accounting, those are probably the best thing you could have. It's an amazing service provided by nature. All you have to do is to conserve the watershed that that water goes through. And you don't have sort of secondary problems associated with what you've done to clean the water. Meanwhile, what we do in many cities is we, this is another story like the pollination story. What we've done is to uh, chlorinate water, which saves millions and millions of lives. We can't not do it in the cities we do it in, but chlorinating water while disfavoring pathogens also favors some species that like chlorine that are a far lesser problem than the pathogens but they're a new problem we then have to, to deal with. And so I think it's important that we sort of have a global reckoning to think about, well, what are all these services we depend on right now from nature? And how do we keep from breaking those services so we don't have to fix each and every one of them? And there's another example that's not in the book and it's based on, it relates to a paper that was published after the book came out. And it was a new global study of forest regeneration. So what happens after you cut a forest down? And one of the things that study concluded is that if forest is still, if a cleared area is still near to other intact forest, the ability of the forest to recover and grow back in many regions is actually extraordinary. And so here's the service that nature can provide back to us. We use the, the land for what we need, but then nature can help uh, restore that forest. In most cases, we're actually worse from most perspectives at planting a forest, growing all the seeds up, planting the seedlings, however you want to do it, uh, the nature is at just regrowing a forest if there's some intact forest nearby. And so there are lots of examples like this and, and they like, like all these cases, they can get complex. But the key take home is when we have these functioning services provided by nature, we need to understand them, we need to conserve them, we need to not lose them because what we make in their place is very, very rarely as good as what was there to start with. The, the laws you talk about don't just apply to human individuals or, or even populations, but you also talk about some ways in which they, they manifest or they apply to the manifestation of human decisions in our institutions. And I'm thinking in particular about your discussion of inventive intelligence and how species with inventive intelligence are more able to survive in, in unstable variable conditions than our species that are sort of more focused on sort of very narrow conditions. Uh, you know, you look at the example of the crows versus the dusty seaside sparrow. And then you apply this to how our, our human institutions function. And you say that there's going to need to be a real reckoning and, and retooling of how we make decisions and, and move forward institutionally in this increasingly variable world. Can you talk a little bit more about what you what you mean by that? And, and are there any examples out there of this starting to, to work better and, and institutions adopting this more inventive intelligence that we can then sort of model off of moving forward? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the simple idea is that if, if your world stays the same, if it's the same year to year, you can do the same thing again and again, year after year, and get ever better at it. And that's a great way to live. And so if we think about birds, if, if birds are really well adapted to a particular kind of marsh 
and a particular kind of seasonality and a particular food supplies. And if, if that marsh and those foods stay the same, that can be extraordinarily successful. I mean, and so you think about face mites that live on humans. That's a really weird niche, but there are a lot of humans. And so it's a, it's a, it's a very successful niche. But when conditions change year to year, that, that approach, that lifestyle, that niche becomes really problematic. But if you think about the, the marsh bird, if the marsh is very different one year to the next, and you're very, very specialized on that marsh, it's very likely your populations are going to crash. And, and so there's a lot of work on thinking about this in nature. And, and one of the things that the, that work concludes, as you suggested, is that one way to deal with that year-to-year -year variation is to be inventively intelligent. It's to have enough brains to do different things one year to the next to find different ways of going about living. And I, I think just in the, the bird context, this to me is really fascinating. But, but the human context, I think, is really important in that we have many, many institutions, governments, universities, businesses that have been doing the same thing for a long time. And because many of the conditions they face are very similar year to year, that works great. One hears it, I won't say me, but one hears it at universities very often that this is what we've always done. This has always worked. And when conditions aren't changing, great, let's keep doing what works. Um, but we're not facing a future of unchanging conditions. We're facing a future of radical change. You know, we had some of the hottest days on record in the US this year and some of the coldest days, and in some cases in the same places. Like this is a perfect example. Businesses aren't ready for that. Universities aren't ready for that. You think about COVID-19. Business as usual at universities in the context of COVID-19 was a huge fail. We couldn't just keep doing the same things. And, and so I think moving forward, we really need to be thoughtful about how do we build institutions? How do we build governments that have inventive intelligence that, that are anticipating the fact that the world will change and readying themselves for it? And often when I write a book, there's some things that um, are sort of at the edge of what we're, we're thinking about collectively for which there aren't great examples. And then once the book comes out, people start to write me with great stories <laughs> that should have gone in the book. And so my hope is for this chapter that I start to hear those great stories. I don't have them yet. I hope so for all of us too. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I loved uh, about this book is that you make vividly clear that these laws of ecology will continue even after we humans are inevitably gone one day and that these laws operate independently of us. And based on these laws, you write that ecologists actually have quite a good idea of what the trajectory of life could look like on earth uh, after humans go extinct. And you make clear that you know we are gonna go extinct ev eventually, everyone, all species do. And uh, it may not be for a while yet, but uh, what did you, what do you and what do the scientists that you spoke with think life on a post-human planet could look like based on these laws of ecology? Yeah, it's a good question. It's interesting. People have responded to that chapter in two ways. I would say one people, one group of people feels that it's grim that we to think about life after humans. Um, and the other group of people think that it's, uh, um, there's some solace in it to realize that things will go on. And it's, it's, someone should do some psychology on those two responses <laughs> and what they mean. Um, but so the, one of the things that we most clearly know is that there will be a whole series of what we call co-extinctions, where species that depend on another species go extinct when that host, that, that central species go extinct, goes extinct. And so if we think about the world today, an extraordinary number of species depend on humans. And those include many of the species that we, we think now is sort of the, the toughest things on the block. And so German cockroaches, for example, can't live outdoors. They live great with us, but they, they outdoors, like they can't deal with it. Um, they're, they're very much city slickers. Many are indoor species are probably the same. Many of our domesticates would go extinct and that probably includes tens of thousands of kinds of crops. Um, many pests and pathogens of those crops, you know, probably a thousand human pathogens and parasites. 
And so there is this wave of extinction associated with our loss. But then after that wave of extinction, then there's a kind of rebirth. And what that rebirth looks like, an evolutionary rebirth, really depends on what, what's left over when we go. You know, it, what is it that leads us to go extinct? And have, have we, you know, are all the mammals gone too? That, that kind of thing. But, but if some species go extinct, but we don't lose. So for example, imagine tigers go extinct, but there's still some kind of big cat. What most people would predict is you would see again, the evolution of a bigger cat, smaller kinds of cats, cats with more specialized diets. The same thing is if you have one kind of canid, one kind of wild dog, wolf, fox that's around, but not others, you would see again a diversification. You would probably expect to see those things that have spread globally to diversify place to place and to take uh, on new opportunities and niches. And so some rat species, for example, are really dependent on us, but others aren't. And so a number of biologists have speculated that if there was a lot of extinction, but there are still rats around, maybe you, you see the evolution of big carnivorous rats, kangaroo-like hopping rats, underground rats, fishing rats. And, and so you could see these sorts of scenarios. And, and some parts of this are really we know to expect because they've happened again and again. And so lizards that live in desert environments have evolved frilly toes, sort of really lovely lacy toes for running on the sand many, many times. You know, carnivore species, mammalian carnivores, carnivores evolve the same kinds of skulls again and again. And so some of these features we just imagine will recur. The North American porcupine and the African porcupine are both rodents, but otherwise totally unrelated and have converged on that porcupine form. And so we expect some of those things to come back uh, in some version. On the other hand, you know, some of the things we see evolutionarily, they only really turn up once. You know, could will elephants evolve again if elephants go extinct? Elephants are pretty weird. Will we see leafcutter ants again if leafcutter ants were extinct? Maybe, but maybe not. That's a pretty weird lifestyle to be an ant that farms a fungus on living leaves. And so there are these things that we can also anticipate that I find pretty wondrous. The things that we, we know we can't predict. Things so marvelously new that they're beyond our ability to imagine. And that the future contains those things to me. I mean, it makes me smile, you know, that the idea that future evolution goes on making wonders. The other thing we know is that if we really, if, if Earth is in really bad shape from the perspective of vertebrates, that if, if it's really, really, really hot or really, really full of toxins, that there will still be species that will love that. And in fact, if you look at the tree of life, to so imagine a real tree, the truth is all the vertebrates, all the fungi, all the plants, they're a teeny part of that big tree of life. Most of the really big ancient branches are microbial. And most of those really, really old microbial branches are actually things that love conditions that are actually quite rare now on earth. And so if we make the earth much hotter and much more toxic to us, there are a whole species, a suite of really wonderful microbial lineages that are likely to become more common and to radically diversify. And, and so whatever we do, there are these lineages that will still thrive, uh, which I find to be interesting. And then at some point we run out of sunlight and or something else catastrophic happens. And, and eventually there's some end to, to life on earth, um, but, it, but it's not because of us. It's some much farther future. I know there are many, many more questions that we could, we could ask you, but one question just to wrap up that we ask most of our guests is, uh, are there any books or works or films or, or other media that, that have been impactful for you that you would like to recommend, whether, you know, something more recent or something that's been with you for a long time? Well, I think maybe two or two are interesting. I, I think about whether they relate to this book. Um, but, but one is, all of Lauren Isley's work. And so Lauren Isley, an anthropologist who wrote about the living world, 
and and he wrote about its grandeur and i i always find his his wonder-filled writing to be inspirational and then maybe a, a silly recommendation is richard rousseau's book straight man uh, which is a book about academic life and that's interesting to me in this context because even as we struggle to to make sense of these grand truths about the living world we're we're doing it through our humble human lens that's that's totally fraught in the context of our daily interactions and and i, th I think that book does a good job of evoking some of the mundane realities of of the academics who are trying to find big truths or big stories but nonetheless inhabiting human worlds. Well, Dr. Rabjan, thank you so very much for joining us. Oh, it was my great pleasure. Thank you too to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Write us a review and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Dr. Rob Dunn and his work. Thanks for listening.